Many of you like to make comments about the fact that I grew up in California. And I, I've dished out a fair amount of criticism of New Jersey, so it's uh, warranted, right? Um, yeah, you know, maybe the thing that people say the most is, I could never live in California. Now listen, I could never live in California because we could finish that sentence a lot of ways. Can I get an amen? Uh, that's for my parents. Anyway, uh, I could never live in California, but what people most often say is, I could never live in California because of the earthquakes. Earthquakes. We hadn't been in California but for, I think, a month, and I experienced my first earthquake. And, uh, and the first of many that would happen, so much so that it's, you know, it's not that big of a deal uh, to those of us who grew up there. But earthquakes, the, the reason why earthquakes are so freaky for people is because the earth is shaking. Can I get an amen on that also? Like, and people are like, oh, I can handle a hurricane. I can handle long winters and, you know, uh, you know living in a frozen tundra for four months of the year and, and snow and all that stuff. But when the earth itself is moving, I'm out. Get me out of here. And uh, some of you may remember when we moved to the great state of New Jersey, there was an earthquake. I don't know if you remember that. And um, we were so busy moving that we didn't even feel it, but some of you felt it. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I get it. But, you know, with the earth actually shaking, you feel like the foundations of your world are not dependable, right? I mean, that's the deal. So people are like, I just couldn't live in a world like that where you had to deal with earthquakes all the time. You know that earthquakes are a symptom of a problem. That earthquakes are a function of really all of creation being under the curse. And when I use that language, I'm referring, of course, to Genesis chapter 3. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose to sin, there were consequences for that decision to sin, to rebel against God. And the consequences weren't just for Adam and Eve or the serpent, that actually there were consequences that, were, that bled all the way down through to creation itself. In fact, the Lord tells Adam, the ground is cursed because of you, in Genesis 3.16. The, the ground is cursed because of you. And then he said, You're gonna, it's going to be a pain for you to get food from the ground. He says, it will produce thorns and thistles. Now listen, when the Lord says thorns and thistles there, in Genesis 3, I think it's 19, when he says that, he doesn't just mean thorns and thistles. He means disease. Relentlessly spreading through the world that we're basically powerless to stop. He means tainted water supplies wreaking havoc on communities. He means droughts causing famine, leading to hardship. He means natural disasters like hurricanes or tornadoes, earthquakes. We could probably include in here even tragedies like car accidents or house fires, just Things that happen when you slip on the ice in the winter and you fall and you break a bone. We could also include war and how warfare ravages the earth itself. I can tell you this morning that we live in a cursed creation at the moment. But as I say that, I know I don't have to convince you because you, you are living in the midst of it. That the curse of creation, that you're feeling it in some way, the impact of sin on our physical world. And the first four trumpets here, which announce the arrival, the initial down payment of God's judgment, right? These first four trumpets, they picture God's judgment of creation. In a sense, because creation has been infected with, disease, with the disease of sin, 
it needs to be dealt with. And so there's an interesting facet of the outpouring of God's wrath in the book of Revelation that, that says this actually needs to happen to creation. Now, it's not the end of the story, and we'll get there before we're done this morning, but you just need to understand that these first four trumpets, they form a picture of the brokenness of creation. And I think what's going on, now just remember, this is not security camera footage. And by the way, that's where often people go wrong in reading Revelation. They're going to try to, to read this in an overly literal fashion. What it says is true. What it, what it talks about here, it's accurate. But it's not meant to be understood as a literal picture of God's judgment of creation. It's meant to present in a visionary format the fact that God's judgment is poured out on creation. I think the best explanation of what we're going to read in Revelation 8 this morning is that it, it talks about the, the birth pangs, the brokenness of the, of the world, and that's between the time of Christ's death and resurrection and his return. Jesus calls that the birth pangs time. There's going to be a time where physical creation will manifest birth pangs that says the end is coming. That is not going to last forever. And Jesus talks about earthquakes, he talks about famines, he talks about those kinds of things, some of the things that we'll, we'll see referenced, uh, at least in, indirectly here this morning in Revelation 8. So there's been uh, a lot of difficulty, especially in the first four trumpets, nailing down specifically like when, like, don't worry about the when, okay? The, the when is not as important as the why here in Revelation 8, okay? And all of this will come to pass. Whatever the visionary uh, presentation represents, it will happen by the time of up to and including the final judgment, and we'll see that here this morning. But you and I need to know that this matters to us because we live in a broken creation right now. And we're faced with the temptation to respond to the brokenness of creation, not with faith, but with idolatry. And that's the, the same situation that the, the churches in Revelation that they were facing. Those seven churches in Asia Minor, they faced earthquakes. They faced famines. They faced fires and, and droughts and corrupted water supplies. They faced those challenges. But the sad thing was that when they faced them, often they did what their neighbors did. They went to their Roman or Greek god or goddess. And they offered sacrifices there because maybe they could solve the problem. Hey, if we're having a problem with rain... And there's a Greco-Roman God that can make it rain. Shouldn't, wouldn't, I mean, you know, I know we worship Jesus, but can we just play both sides here? And does it really hurt that much to offer a sacrifice to that God or goddess? Brothers and sisters, you know that we struggle with that same temptation today. We feel like, oh, you know what? I'm really struggling here. And, you know, everybody else is saying I should do this. And you know what? Maybe I should just do that. Everybody else is just, you know, living for the money because that's what's going to make them happy. And I'm not happy, so maybe I should just... I mean, I can go to church on Sunday, but I can still chase money the rest of the week. Maybe I should just play both sides. It seems like it makes sense, perhaps. Now, our response to creation is why we need to know that, that God's judgment is poured out even on the brokenness of this world. And there's hope on the backside of this. So let's work through these verses together, consider what's going on, and just be, be careful to think about how it impacts us, okay? Picking it up in verse 6. So this, remember the context. So um, John's in this visionary, visionary journey up to heaven. He uh, saw the lamb take the scroll from the father seated on the throne. The seals are on the scroll. The scroll contains the will of God for the universe, especially in his judgment of it all, making wrongs right. So he's broken now up to this point all the seals. So last week we had the half an hour of silence after the breaking of the seventh seal. What was the seventh seal? Seven trumpets. 
So we're kind of like, we've got this, uh, you know, um, telescoping effect where we're diving deeper now into what's revealed as God's will for the, for the universe. And I'm not so much worried about the chronology of it again. We're, we're focused more on the fact that it's diving down further into explaining some of the same things that even were revealed in some of the seals. And we'll see that here before we're done this morning. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Uh, and the seven angels, here the seven angels before the Lord, they had these seven trumpets. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets, what did they do? They prepared to blow them. So the trumpets are announcing the judgment of God. That's what they're doing. They're announcing the, the arrival and the judgment of God on the world. The first four deal with creation. Verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet. And hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So here we have this picture. It's, 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 it, it's reminiscent of the plagues in Exodus. We're going to see that a lot this morning. Remember, there was a, a plague of hail in Exodus. Well, here we have this hail, but it's not just hail. It's hail and fire mixed with blood being hurled to the earth. And we, we, don't, we don't have a lot to say about, well, what is that? It's just, wow, that's judgment. It's not good. If, if hail is falling with fire and blood, that's not good, okay? You're like, wow, we're paying you for that, Pastor Ryan? Yes, we are. That's, yeah, we got that out of the commentaries this week. And it's so bad that a third of the earth is burned up with this fire. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, again, this is a visionary picture of what God's judgment being poured out on the earth, even on the physical earth. And we'll see uh, next week with uh, the next part of the trumpets that, you know, there's these locusts that are told to eat all the grass. Well, I thought all the grass was burned. Well, it's, again, it's, again, don't push it too hard for being precise, literary, chronological, whatever. What we have here is an expression of God's judgment poured out on the earth. And watch, you know, keep in the back of your mind there that number of a third, a third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the grass. Watch the second trumpet, though. The image goes on. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. You're already thinking probably of Exodus 7, where, again, in the plagues there, there was uh, the, the water of the Nile was turned to blood, and the, the fish in the Nile died. And so you have an echo of that here, a greater expression of that here, as some kind of great mountain was thrown into the sea. And we, don't, we can't say a lot about this. We just say, wow, that, that's not a good situation to be in. And again, we note the, a third, a third, a third. It, the idea of this kind of catastrophe happening to us is unsettling, happening to the world. It's very unsettling. And therein, I think, lies the point and the takeaway. Because as creation falters, and it will falter before the end, as creation falters, what do we need to do? We need to look to the Creator. As creation falters, look to the Creator. You see, idolatry... The struggle of the seven churches, the struggle that we face, the worshiping of false gods, right? Idolatry, it fails to take into account the creation-creator distinction, okay? So if you're thinking about that, creation has a lowercase c, creator has an uppercase c, right? That's what we're talking about. But in idolatry, what happens is we take part of creation and we make it into a god, 
And so the fact that there's judgment poured out on creation itself here, it's just a reminder that, listen, if you're banking on creation, if you're banking on the ground not shaking, if you're banking on money, if you're banking on things that you can touch and, and see and feel, or numbers that you can see in your, in your account, or uh, numbers of followers online, or whatever, right? if you're banking on creation or something in creation to rescue you, it can't. Because even creation itself is stained with sin and must be judged. As creation falters, look to the Creator. We even live in a time where creation worship is a thing. I don't know, you may realize that we've just come off of Earth Day recently. Um, I, I just scoured online and found, without just looking for two minutes, I found a quote for this year's Earth Day that I think expresses this kind of creation worship that's really latent in our culture. But this is the quote about Earth Day, talking about the Earth. She's the only planet we've got. Her beauty is second to none, and she's been there for us every step of the way. You hear the deification of the Earth here? Her beauty compares to none. She's been there for us every step of the way. With idolatry, we fail to discern the creation-creator distinction. And we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, you may not be tempted to worship the Earth, but I know you're tempted to worship something in creation. And so we just have to be honest with our struggle and say, you know what? The scary picture here of God pouring out His wrath on creation itself is meant to remind me that my hope is not in creation. It's in the Creator. So there's, there's actually a confidence we have in the Lord. It, the Exodus echoes are important because... The fact is, it's the same problem that Israel had in, in Egypt, and certainly the problem the Egyptians had, where you have this temptation to worship just like the world does. And so the Egyptians worship all these gods, so the Israelites think, well, maybe we should worship all these gods. And why does God send these plagues on the earth? To say, don't worship the Nile. Don't worship the sun. Don't worship cows. Don't worship frogs. Like, Egypt was weird. Anyway, you know, so it's like, don't, don't worship all these things. And it's that, that dynamic, that spiritual struggle, it's the same struggle in Revelation chapter 8. It's the same struggle that we face, where we live in a, a new Egypt. And so as creation around us falters, and maybe it's the market going down, you know, maybe it's like just things that we think we can depend on that just start to shake a little bit, and we get a little, whoa-oh, the deal is, listen, creation's going to falter. It's, it's cursed. Thorns and thistles. So as it falters, we look to the Creator. Remember what John Calvin said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. We're constantly churning out new things to worship as a part of creation. And if there's one thing we need to be encouraged by this morning, it's that we do have hope, but it is not in creation. It's in the Creator. Now, the third trumpet has another Exodus echo as the, the scene intensifies. Okay, verse 10, The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water, the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, so that many people died, so that many of the people died from the waters because they had been made, because they had been made bitter. Okay, uh, some of you are thinking, oh, easy, this is a meteorite, done. We got this one packed, right? Uh, maybe, 
you know, but, but maybe it's also um, one angelic, an, an angel, an angelic servant of the Lord. The name, because the star is named, that's a little weird, okay? So, and the name means bitter or bitterness. And so this, this angel causes the waters to be bitter, which again, that's not a new problem, that there's a problem in water, you know, there's a problem with contaminated water, and there has been a problem with that, really since Genesis 3. And so what's happening? Well, indirectly, people are dying because of the bitterness of this water. Now listen, you're thinking, what does this have to do with the Exodus? Well, just remember, in Exodus 15, after Israel has come out of the, the land of Egypt, they've experienced all these plagues, God has proven his superiority, they get into the wilderness in Egypt, and they're thirsty, right? God's leading them through Moses, and so they get to this place, and they go to drink the water, and the water was contaminated. And what did they do? They complained. They complained, why are we here? We're so thirsty. Where is the Gatorade, Moses? You promised us Gatorade, okay? Like, this is, and you don't want to, the top 10 places you don't want to be stuck without water, like there, okay? Sinai Peninsula, don't want to be there without water, okay? So they need this water. And you know what happened? The Lord, the Lord miraculously turns the water from being bitter to being pure so they could drink it. And I would love to tell you that those people believed and they trusted God and their lives were changed. But they didn't believe. And they still complained. And that generation did not, did not see the promised land because they refused to trust God. You know, here in this moment, in the third trumpet blowing, with all the waters turning bitter, there's an intentional literary echo here of Exodus 15. Well, why? Because there's a lesson here for us. In the midst of creation faltering, the real problem that you and I are going to face is the problem of faith. And lack of faith, make no mistake, lack of faith is deadly. If we refuse to trust the Lord, then we're going down with creation. I mean, that's the deal. And I think there's a little, an echo here of Exodus 15 to warn us, to say, you need to be careful about your heart. You need to be careful about what it is that you're trusting in. And if you refuse to trust the Lord, if you, if you refuse to trust the Lord now, what makes you think you'll trust Him then? When the earth is shaking, and the fires are burning, and the water's bitter. Now listen, the fact is, Complaining is often a sign of lack of faith in our hearts. And so maybe it is true we have come to faith in Jesus, but there are pockets of resistance in our souls, lingering areas where we are still refusing to or hesitant to trust the Lord, to really surrender to Him. And one of the signs that you're struggling with that is an area of complaint, where you just complain about this. This is a problem. And it's not, complaining is different than an acknowledgement of, of pain and difficulty. So there's one, there's one way to say, yes, God, I am really struggling here. This hurts, right? There's another thing is saying, God, where's the Gatorade? You, you, you let us out here in the wilderness. Where, where, what do we got? Right? A criticism. There's an inherent criticism of God's leadership in that complaining spirit, right? And so I think there's a, a, an indirect warning here via the Exodus analogy that people were bitter, even as God's grace had abounded to them. These are the people who saw God judge the gods of Egypt. These are the people that saw God deliver them from Pharaoh's army. 
and yet they persisted in doubt. Well, as creation falters, will we look to the Creator? You might just ask the question, where am I complaining a lot today? Where, where am I so focused on myself and so struggling with entitlement, right? I deserve, you got to be so careful with that, right? I deserve, I'll, you know, I'll tell my kids what they deserve. Where are they? Right? Yeah, right? I mean, we just, you got to be careful with that. What is it that we deserve? And yet, in the midst of moments where God shows His grace, even as creation falters, we sometimes remain bitter. We don't see what God is doing. And so, you know, even as maybe we struggle to understand, okay, is this just talking about water supply, you know, being bitter and deadly? Maybe is it a climactic moment where that happens in in an intense way towards the end? Maybe. But I think the takeaway is clear either way. We got to ask the question, are we bitter? Are we complaining against the Lord? Or will we learn the lesson of Exodus 15 and will we trust the God who provides and who has demonstrated that He is sovereign over all of it? He's trustworthy. Lack of faith is deadly. We can't can't tolerate it. The day of reckoning is coming. And that's really where the fourth trumpet comes in. So work with me here on the fourth trumpet. So we get to the fourth, and we read in verse 12, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. And a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. So a couple things here. First of all, we have the darkening of the sun and the moon. Now that tracks nicely with the sixth seal, if you're paying attention from weeks past in chapter 6, where we have uh, the darkening of the sun and the moon. So it seems like we're talking about the same general time frame here. We're going to get to more of that later in the bowls before we get to the end, okay? So there's more of this coming. Now that, the darkening of the sun and moon, that is thick with prophetic significance, Prophetic significance about what? Talking about the judgment of God, the final day of judgment. So that's what this is looking forward to. And so the darkening of, of the sun and the moon, that's like the idea. Picture is, wow, cataclysmic judgment. Like the day has come, God is storming out of heaven, and it's going down. That's why they're blowing the trumpets, by the way, because it's going down, right? And so we have that, that significance. So probably what the fourth trumpet pictures is, again, that, that, that end time of cataclysmic judgment where we finally see the, the last day coming. And so there's, you know, this continued description of this. It's kind of like a really slow burn description of God's judgment of the world here being unpacked. Still against creation, though, as we see with the sign against the sun and the moon and the stars. But we got to ask the question, what about the one-third? We've had a, a one-third the whole way. What about the one-third? Well, what's going on is this, that while all of creation is cursed, and while all of us have the problem of sin, what do we see happening since the resurrection of Jesus to the end? We see a restraint of God's judgment. Where God could, at any moment, He could pour out all of His judgment on this world. But He's only only pouring out some. Why? Because the Creator is gracious. Gracious. You know, it's so funny. You, you wouldn't think it. And, and a culture is so allergic to the idea of judgment and wrath, but you wouldn't think it. But right here in a passage thick with God's wrath being poured out against creation, what do we find? 
we find a crystal clear statement about his mercy. That God's not, he is not pouring it all out. Now, we're going to find out why here as we keep moving through the context. But in chapter 9, we get a little hints in verses 20 and 21 that God is being patient, pouring out his wrath. Why? To give time for repentance. So why doesn't God just pour out his wrath now? Some of us, sometimes you get a bad day. You're like, let's go, Lord. Like, I'm done waiting. Like, forget the one third. Let's go all the way. Right? Let's do it. But the fact is that God, and it's in 2 Peter, God is not slow, as some count slow, but he is patient. Why? He's waiting. Because he has ordained for people to believe who haven't believed yet. And so he says, I got it. We're just going to hold off on the end because there's more time for people to repent. And so there's this indication of his grace here. As creation falters, we look to the creator. First, we look to the creator in repentance. Even in, even in judgment, God is gracious. And can I just encourage you this morning? Um, you know, we don't know when that final day will come. So the fact is, as long as it's called today, there's an urgency to the call to repentance, right? And so I would just maybe encourage you, if you've never trusted in Christ, and you're saying, yeah, I'll get to that when I'm older. Like sometimes when we're kids, we think, oh, well, when I get to college and stuff, I'll get serious about Jesus. Or when we're in college, we think, oh, once I get married, you know, then I'll, I'll get more serious with the Lord. And once we get married, we think, well, once I have kids, then I'm going to get, you know, I've got to get the kids in church because, yeah, you know. And, and then once we have kids, well, once I get the kids out of the house, then we'll have time for the Lord. And, you know, well, once I get to retirement, well, then I'll really have time for the Lord. And you know what's happened? Our whole life has gone by. A life of, a life manifested by a lack of faith. A life that looks like someone who didn't believe. And so there's an urgency here, and I would just maybe encourage you this morning, if you're here and you're thinking, yeah, maybe I'll do God later, there may not be a later. But by God's grace, there's a today. And so he has withheld his judgment so that people will repent. And maybe today, that's your day. It's your opportunity to finally get on your knees and confess your sin before the Lord and say, I am a sinner and I need a Savior and God you have rescued me through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And I ask for your forgiveness. And I am yours now. And I'm not going to follow you after the next thing happens. I'm going to follow you right now. This is the good news. The Lord is patient with us. There's so much hope in this. So as creation falters, we look to the creator first in repentance. By the way, there's also an opportunity for repentance for believers who have continued to struggle with idolatry. So we go, listen, wow, you know, whenever there's, a, whenever there's a natural disaster or something big goes down, I think there's a moment to say, wait a minute, am I focusing on what really matters, right? Am I focusing on the Lord? And maybe I haven't been, so maybe I need to confess that I've been worshiping the gods of our, our culture. So as creation fathers, we look to the creation, or we look to the creator in repentance. But then secondly, as creation falters, we can look to the creator in perseverance, This is, I think, the real takeaway for the seven churches and and our primary takeaway this morning. As creation falters, look to the Creator in perseverance. So, again, um, wildfires were happening then. Again, tainted water supplies were happening then. I mean, they faced difficult physical circumstances, just like we do today. And from time to time, big stuff happens in, in creation, and it's hard. 
And sometimes it's not so much the wildfires in the water, but it's the cancer, it's the car accidents, it's those kinds of things that, that, that really cause us to have difficulty practically in our lives. But there's a recognition here in, in Revelation 8 that of two things. One, don't forget, the trumpets are an answer to the prayers of all the saints. Which you're like, I didn't pray for an earthquake. <laughs> Can I get it? I mean, we, I didn't pray for an earthquake. I, I didn't pray for God to rain down fire from heaven on the earth. I didn't pray for that. But what we are praying for is for God's will to be done. And so there's a, a moment here, well, whoa, this is the answer to the prayers of the saints? Well, yes, it's God's reckoning with all of creation. This is part of it. It's part of that process where God will not just pour out his wrath, but make things right. And so this is an answer to the prayer of the saints. And secondly, where is it coming from? The trumpeters, these angelic trumpeters, they're God's servants. This is God's work that he is doing. So we have to just recognize that he is sovereign over it. And it's not just that he's sovereign, but that he's good. And we have a word for this. The word is providence. You need to know this word. Providence refers to the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. And it's God's work. So we talk about God's providence in that God is not only sovereign over the world, but that he is actually governing the world for good. He's actually governing the world in a way that shows his glory. And we don't understand how all of that plays out in the details. And anybody that claims to understand that is definitely overstepping their capacity, right, uh, for knowledge. But what we know and what the Bible teaches us so clearly is that when it looks like it's not going very well, we can trust in our good God because of his providence. And so, yes, the ground may shake and the fires may burn and waters are, are, are contaminated and people are dying and it's, it's, the life is hard and, and car accidents happen and cancer diagnosis has come and all of this. But will we persevere and trust the Lord? This, I think it gives us at least four things. First of all, it gives us confidence or, or hope in hard times. Hope in hard times. I know some of you are facing really hard times right now. And as creation falters, as your little chunk of creation, right, that you live in, as that falters, look to your creator. You can, you can persevere, not because you can do it, but because he is faithful. That's a function of confidence in God's providence. Again, an understanding that, and I, I gave you that definition that was helpfully given to us by John Piper, that, that God is purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. What a helpful definition that we can find that, that gives us confidence in the midst of times when the, the ground is shaking. But thirdly, perseverance also leads us to reject the idolatry of our age. So just let the Exodus motif, you know, kind of flesh itself out. The darkness factor here in the fourth trumpet, the darkness, that was the ninth plague in, in Exodus. That was the ninth plague, the one before the end. And again, that tells us, you know, this is like right up, now maybe we're talking about getting right up to the end. Well, what do we need right up to the end? What we need to follow Jesus. That's what we need. We need to reject idolatry. Fourthly, perseverance helps us refuse to be intimidated by the big dogs. Let's put big dogs in quotes there, okay? Big dogs. Uh, Listen, if you're a Christian, in the Roman Empire, in Asia Minor, in the first century, 
the biggest dog in the world was Caesar. And Rome was the biggest power. And everywhere you went, you went on Roman roads. Everywhere, every town you got to was built on Roman architecture, the Roman design. Rome was so powerful, its, its influence pervaded every aspect of culture. And when you think about God raining down fire from heaven and water supplies being tainted and darkness and the whole just creation going down, man, the sun and moon going down. Like when you think about all that, it's just a reminder that Caesar can't do that. So God, his authority is absolute because he's the creator. And you might be intimidated by the Roman officials going around confiscating scriptures. That's, that happened in the first century. You might be intimidated by the local magistrate who thought he was the, the big dog and was going around imprisoning Christians because he was showing off for his buddies at the, you know, in, the, in the government. You might be intimidated by the fact that, yes, they knew people who had been imprisoned and executed because of their faith. That's intimidating. And here we are, we live in a world where you can get on a plane and fly almost anywhere, and you'll find signs in English in that airport. Our cultural heritage has, in, has, has pervaded much of the world, most of the world, we could say. And sometimes it feels like we can't get away from the influence of Hollywood or the influence of Wall Street or the influence of Washington, D.C. But when you're intimidated by that and maybe there's some, you know, saber, saber rattling going on and there's a little bit of, uh, you know, just kind of posturing in the culture against Christianity— you just need to know that whatever they do on Wall Street, they can't darken the sun. And whatever they're doing there in D.C., okay, they're not hurling down fire from heaven, right? I mean, there's a recognition here that as the church, we, we will be, and we, it's necessary, we have to be a minority in the culture. It's just how it is, right? But just because we're the minority doesn't mean we have to be afraid. So don't let Rome intimidate you. Don't let Wall Street intimidate you. Don't let Hollywood or Washington or whoever intimidate you. Now, as creation falters, we look to the Creator, right? In perseverance or in repentance and in perseverance. Now we've gotten this far, but we have to say, okay, let's talk about the rest of the story. Because when I read this this part of Revelation, I think immediately of Romans chapter eight, where we read about in Romans eight where creation is groaning waiting for the day, like, let's go. Like, here, like this is it. This is part of it. Like, creation's groaning. They're, creation itself is done with the thorns and thistles. So, well, what's going to be happening? Where is this all going? Well, thankfully, this isn't the end of Revelation. We keep going. This is just spoiler alert, okay? This is where we're headed, right? We are headed not to the destruction of creation, which you would think that when you read these verses, like a third of it's all gone and then the rest of it's just going to go. But that's not where we're headed. We're not headed for the destruction of creation. We are headed to the restoration of creation, to the healing and the renewal of creation, to the new heaven and the new, you know, the new earth. That's where we're headed. That's, that, what is that? That means God's wrath is satisfied. His judgment has been finished. That the work is done. Wrongs have been made right. And now even creation itself will be restored. And so we get this glorious picture of the, the goodness of what it will be. And that sustains us in the midst of this temporary time when we face the struggling and the difficulty. Sometimes I think we just forget where we're headed. And when the earth shakes, just remember, it won't shake. Now listen. I don't know for sure that there won't be earthquakes in the new earth, but like, I'm pretty sure, 
okay? So on Pastor Ryan's scale of certainty, like, I'm going to go, like, with an eight or a nine on that, okay? Because earthquakes are kind of weird, you know? So, like, what is it going to be like? Well, we don't know all the details, but we know it's going to be good, and it's going to be right. We're headed towards restoration. Why? Because the death and resurrection of Jesus, as the focal point of history, accomplished what they needed to accomplish, meaning the removal of sin. That not only has sin's penalty been dealt with, but its presence will be dealt with. It'll be gone. And so in Christ, what do we see? Creation's not only judged, but it will be renewed. So there's a biblical, don't mess it, right? There's a biblical uh, kind of theology here where we go from Genesis 3 with creation being cursed, thorns and thistles. We're living in the reality of that. We get to uh, Revelation 1, that we're worshiping creation. Revelation 8, creation's groaning for rescue. Like, it's, let's go. When are we going to get there? Uh, Revel- uh, Romans, excuse me, Romans 1 and Romans 8. And then we get to Revelation 8 where we have God's judgment being poured out on creation and then the ultimate end with the new earth. So we're kind of bookending here with the creation gets broken, then creation gets restored. Now, we're living in the broken time right now, right? So we recognize that. But as as creation falters, when your earth is shaking, look to the Creator. This theme is found in many places in, in the Bible, and one of the places it's found is in Psalm 98. My buddy Isaac Watts, did I tell you about my buddy Isaac Watts? 1700s, um, this guy was a real deal, but um, pastor, he was actually imprisoned a couple times uh, during, the, during his lifetime uh, because of his service of the Lord, and commitment to preach the gospel. Anyway, you know, you know Isaac Watts because he's written a lot of hymns that some of them we still sing. Um, so he had written a book of poems. Many of them became hymns. It was this, this is 1719, right? And he's written uh, this poem um, on the Psalms. So all the poems were related to Psalms. He gets to Psalm 98, which is really a celebration of God as king. And he interpreted that rightly as a celebration of Christ as king. So he really saw in Psalm 98 a celebration of Jesus as king. But notice in Psalm 98, just listen to this picture, okay? Listen to this picture. Um, and this is, it's not a mistake. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord our king. Let the sea and all that fills it and the world and all who live in it resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. This is my buddy Watts. He's reading Psalm 98. And he's reading about the world rejoicing. He's reading about creation rejoicing. And he's, you know, he's got this whole concept of clapping, the rivers clapping their hands. The mountains are shouting together for joy. And he's like, yeah, joy to the world. And so he wrote a song called Joy to the World, which has nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> it has a little bit to do with Christmas, a tiny bit, because in Christmas we celebrate the arrival of the king. But listen, Isaac Watts did not write that specifically to be an Advent song. And the, the interesting thing, if, I don't know if you've ever been singing Joy to the World, but you're like, some of this is second Advent stuff, bro. Like, like, first advent, yes, the king has come, and we worship, yes. But a lot of what we sing about, the curse being removed, listen to the words, the curse being removed from creation. Creation no longer being in judgment and being cursed, but now re- rejoicing and praising, and all the world rejoicing and praising. We're not there yet. I mean, we're headed there. God is at work. We're on our way. 
But man, we're, we're just not quite there yet. And so there's a lot of joy to the world from Psalm 98 that's second advent oriented. Listen, I don't want to be weird about it, but maybe joy to the world is more like a revelation kind of worship song, okay? Far as the curse is found, he says. Wherever sin's taint has gone, as far as it has made it, let that part of the earth see that Jesus is the solution and rejoice. Because of Jesus, there is genuine, true joy that comes to the world. Now listen, our experience today is hard, and yours may get harder, but when it does, look to the Creator, and then you will be able to sing joy to the world. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray for us. Pastor Jesse and the team is going to come. We're going to stand, and we are going to sing joy to the world. Close this out. So would you please pray with me? Lord, we pause again this morning, and we just... These images are hard for us to comprehend here in Revelation 8, and we confess that. And, but Lord, we see clearly um, the intended effect that in your righting of wrongs, there is the removal of the curse of sin from creation. And part of that is cataclysmic, Lord. And we will be tempted. We are tempted in the midst of earth-shaking times, whether it's physical illness financial trials, emotional problems, Lord, accidents that are happening, geopolitical news, whatever's going on. Lord, we're tempted to just worship what our neighbors worship. And Lord, that can never bring us joy. It can never sustain us through the difficulties that, that you have ordained for us. Lord, help us to believe that you are sovereign and you are good. Help us to believe in your providence this morning. And Lord, help us as our world sometimes is really shaky and scary to look to you as our creator with faith and with hope. And Lord, may that change how we respond to the trials and difficulties that we are facing. Lord, there's hope in the midst of this message. And we praise you that you are gracious, Lord, and that it's only one-third. And that there is an opportunity for people to repent. And therefore, there's reason for us to persevere. So help us, Lord, to respond to the brokenness of our world with resolute faith in you, singing joy to this world. We thank you that one day we will be able to sing this in a restored earth, in the new earth, without the presence of sin. But in the meantime, Lord, encourage us as we look forward to that day with great anticipation. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.